electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson in today for Kelly Evan, who's off. And here's what's ahead. Inflation trending lower. The consumer still going strong. So is a soft landing all but certain? Yes, says one of our guests, because we're already in one. But whether it lasts, well, that is less certain. In her view, she joins us ahead to make her case. Plus, the builders have proven resilient and creative amid a challenging housing backdrop. TriPoint Homes is one of those builders. The stock up 65% so far this year. The CEO will join us this hour on how they're attracting buyers, what they're doing to attract them and close the sales, and what he sees ahead for housing in the new year. And Morgan Stanley just wrapped up its big consumer and retail conference. Their lead analyst here with the highlights and how to position in retail as a result. But uh, we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu with the numbers. Hi, Dom. We've seen both sides of unchanged right now, and we're at least tilting towards the upper end of the range, as you can see, with the S&P 500 up about one-tenth of one percent, 46.27 the last trade there. At the highs, we were up roughly 10 points, down 14 points at the low, so you can kind of see maybe towards the at least green end of that range. The Dow Industrials up about one quarter of one percent, 36,503. The Nasdaq Composite, 14,459 up about two-tenths of 1% overall. One place that is not, though, in positive territory right now, despite being so earlier in the day, are crude oil prices. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate currently down just about four and a quarter percent, and it's been sliding for the better part of the last couple of hours, currently $68.30. There continues to be this negative sentiment around possible more supply coming to market in the coming weeks and months, alongside demand worries as well. The geopolitical risks that we've seen are not factoring as much to prop up those oil prices, so we continue to watch that $70 mark. We're now below that on U.S. benchmark prices. And that oil trade is perhaps giving some at least positivity towards some of the airline stocks. They're among the S&P 500's best performers so far today. Alaska Airlines up four and a quarter percent. Southwest Air up two and a half percent. American, Delta, United Airlines, you can see all in the green so far today. Uh, Better travel demand trends in this holiday season, coupled with some of that kind of rebound trade in energy prices falling short of expectations, leading to some positivity over airline stocks overall. So keep an eye on oil prices, Tyler, and of course those airline stocks on the heels of that. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. And uh, just over 24 hours now until the Federal Reserve's decision on interest rates, last one of the year, can't believe that. Uh, And the latest CNBC Fed survey suggests the economy is on its way to a soft landing. Steve Leisman has the details. Hi, Steve. Tyler, we'll see about adding another meeting before the year is out. Uh, Respondents to the CNBC Fed survey for December feeling as confident as they've been in this cycle about the chance of a soft landing and less confident in a coming recession. Odds of a soft landing now at 47 percent, up five points from October, which are 42 percent. Odds of a recession, sorry, that was odds of a soft landing, odds of recession are down eight points uh, to 41 percent from 49 percent. That's in the next 12 months. GDP outlook, however, still showing that 
uh, dip, which had been predicted for 2023, now in 2024, less than it had been, but still seeing a below 1% year next year, whereas this year coming in quite a bit stronger than had been originally forecast. A lot hinging on the outlook for the consumer. Uh, Diane Swank writes this colorful piece in response to the survey. She says, the U.S. consumer has proved itself a worthy adversary to everything the Fed has dealt it in its fight against inflation. The key is for a rocky ending with the consumer still standing and able to leave the ring and heal once the Fed rings the final bell and starts to cut rates. Not so optimistic as Joel Naroff of Naroff Advisors. He says counters a softening in hiring, income and growth and confidence all point to reduce consumer and business spending. You can see there the unemployment rate is predicted or forecast to tick up next year quite a bit from the current level. The year-end forecast is 390. It's currently at 37, but up by more than half a point from where it is now. And December 2025 would come back down. On inflation, about a third forecast the Fed will hit the 2% target next year. 37% say it's going to happen in 2025. And 28% say it's going to happen after 2025. Or, Tyler, never. All right, Steve, stick around as we continue our conversation. Our next guest says we are already in a soft landing. The question is whether it lasts. Uh, joining me now, Julia Coronado, founder of Macro Policy Perspectives, uh, and joining us also in the exchange is Steve Leisman, of course. 2023 has been a soft landing. You say we are living the dream. We're living the dream. It's not a destination. It's an environment. And you mm. can, can't really argue that low unemployment, healthy job gains, and Declining inflation isn't a soft landing. It has been a soft landing. But GDP. we're still quite a bit away, aren't we, from the, the Fed's goal of 2% Absolutely. inflation. That's right. And is this last mile going to be the hard mile? In other words, the drop from 7% a year ago has been pretty precipitous. Right. No, we are not of the view that the last mile is the hardest. We see plenty of the seeds in today's report that that process is ongoing and will continue and that we will be very close to the Fed's destination by the end of 2024. All right, we've got a 30-year bond auction uh, to t tell you about, and Rick Santelli is just the person to do it. He's tracking the action at CME. Rick? Well, Tyler, the last 30-year bond auction is what started the entire craze about paying attention to weak auctions, but it wasn't meant to be two in a row because this 30-year bond auction went quite well. I gave it B as in boy, the yield at this Dutch auction, 4.3%. Four, four. The when issued market, well, its yield was a smidge higher, closer to 4.35. So when the when issued is lower, that means the government sold its paper at a higher price, and that's a good thing. So pricing was a good mark, and pretty much the metrics were all or slightly above 10 auction average. The one standout, indirect bidders, that's the one we pay attention to because it includes foreign uh, purchases, and those foreigners did step up 68.5, the best since July of this year, 68% uh, is the 10 auction average. We all know that you could have a lot of soft auctions and not necessarily say that treasury supply is doomed in the future, but it always pays to pay close attention to every auction to see the ongoing demand profile because we know with the amount of debt we have to service and the amount of debt we have to sell, that we're going to have large auctions for a long time. Tyler, back to you. All right, Rick. Rick Santelli, thank you very much. Uh, Steve Leisman, let me turn back wow. to you uh, and see if uh, it, what, what you think of the inflation numbers as we, as we look at them now. Uh, core inflation is still at 4%, and the Fed wants it at 2%. 
Yeah. Uh, first of all, let me just point out a B, a B in Rick's class is like an A plus in every other class. Mm. Uh, as you know, Tyler, Rick um, rejected slide rules when they came along, let alone calculators. He wouldn't let his students use those. So he's tough. And that's a good auction. I'm seeing yields come down. That's going to be helpful, I think, for the economy. Um, on the inflation story, I, I think it was a very neutral report. I don't I did not see the um, positive bullishness that a lot of people saw. And, you know, uh, getting back to Rick, he said it this morning that it was a bit of a Rorschach test. And I like that. Um, and I like to think of it the way Powell's going to think of it. And he's going to point out, Tyler, what you just pointed out, that the service number is sort of barely budged, the 4% number. He has put that out as the marker. He'll acknowledge that the headline is better, but he's not running an oil company here where he's trying to you know, figure out what's happened to oil prices. That's what headline inflation is telling you. I like that food prices came down. I think that's going to help, or food inflation came down. I think that's going to help. There is some disinflation or even deflation on the good side. But Powell has focused his policy and his outlook of policy on the service side. There's less improvement there. I think it's coming. But I don't think it's going to be a guessing game, Tyler, where we're going to wonder what Powell thinks of it. I think what's going to happen is we're going to see the numbers and we're going to know that he and other members of the Fed board like those numbers enough to cut rates. These were not those numbers. You say, Julia, that the futures markets indicate the Fed is going to ease aggressively in 2024. Do you believe that? I, I think that the market's a bit ahead of the Fed, um, mm -hmm. has been. It's gotten quite optimistic uh, in the last month or so about discounting five or even six rate cuts and starting very quickly. And I agree with Steve. We are not there yet. Jerome Powell is not there yet. Uh, today's report only confirmed, I think, the higher for longer messaging that we're likely to yeah. hear. Tomorrow. I'm sorry, I imputed that thought to you. It was actually in an article I was I was just looking <laughs> at. It was it was somebody else. But but I, but your answer is don't expect uh, aggressive. I think Q1 lowering. is very early. They have laid out a strategy. That strategy is working. You raise to restrictive territory. You hold there until inflation is sustainably on its way to your target. And then you ease back the funds. Right? Q2 would be the earliest. Q2 maybe? would be the earliest. I think that we could see the data adding up to really give the Fed the confidence to start adjusting the nominal funds. Rate. Steve, why would the Fed start to cut rates next year? I mean, you the the um, the survey that you just showed did show a slowing economy, 0.9 percent growth. That could be one reason right. to, to cut rates, I suppose. Right. I mean, there's a good reason and a bad reason to cut rates. Let's hope it's the good reason. The bad reason would be if the economy were to roll over into a recession, in which case the, Ked, the Fed could cut very quickly. Um, if, if, if it's cutting in order to normalize policy, that would be a huge and, and very, very welcome development. Uh, in that case, what it might do is say, hey, inflation has come down to a place where we feel confident it's headed to 2%. Notice that I'm making this comment that the Fed would be cutting before it's at 2%. It wouldn't have to get to 2% in order to cut rates. But it would say it's, it's heading down to 2%. We feel confident it's heading down that way. We feel we can ease up on policy. Otherwise, we will become more restrictive. We want to normalize policy. Remember, Tyler, their long-run rate is 2.5% mm -hmm. on a nominal basis. So... Um, the Fed would have a, quite a long way to go to get to normal policy and quite a lot of distance between the two and a half and the 538 where it is right now. So just to wrap it up here, uh, Julia, you think we're in that soft landing now mm -hmm. and we don't get materially softer 
In other words, uh, in other words, the economy doesn't get materially softer, or do you think it will? There's there are risks on both sides of this. Mm -hmm. I think the same forces that delivered better than expected growth are still intact. That is better productivity numbers, mm -hmm. uh, the economy, better labor supply. I think these things have legs and can continue into 2024 and keep us in the soft landing environment. On the other hand, there are lags in monetary policy. Rates are very high. Money's very tight. We could start to see that bite uh, uh, in business investment, in spending on consumer durables. The housing market is still in a deep freeze. That's not a sign of a healthy economy. So uh, there are, I think, risks on both sides of the outlook. But we're reasonably optimistic that we can uh, and the good hey. news is the Fed has ammo. Yeah. Um, if we do hit a patch that's much more worrisome, they can cut rates, not even slash them to zero, just cut rates 100 basis points. Uh, if we uninvert the yield curve, that can really be a, a positive uh, tailwind for growth. In the Steve, did half. you want to squeeze in a final thought? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted just to compliment Julia and her thinking about this, because when I read her notes, I thought that's a really original thought, thinking that we, are, we, we keep thinking we're still in this process of getting to the soft landing. The idea that we're in the soft landing changes the way you might think about the future in that there's another cycle to come here. We keep waiting for the cycle, but right. maybe it's here. We're in and, it. And, and then Julia also <laughs> underscores my, my great fear of living through great times and not noticing it. <laughs> All right, Steve, a great point. Wait, a great thought on which to end. Uh, Steve Leisman, Julia Coronado, thank you very much. All right, small caps still trailing the broader market year-to-date basis, but they have been having a bit of a moment outperforming the uh, S&P 500 over the past month. Our next guest says more gains ahead. Joining us now with top picks in the index is Sandy Villery, portfolio manager at Villery & Company. Sandy, welcome. Good to have you with us. Uh, small caps and value have not exactly been players this year. Why not and why now? It's really incredible, the divergence between, you know, look at the Vanguard growth index up 42% on the year with, with the Russell 2000 up 7. And then if you look at the Vanguard value index, the large cap value names up up 3% on the year. There's a, an amazing, you know, spread and it's time to time to look at buying small caps uh, and, and maybe selling some of those sensational 7 and uh, and taking some profits. Well, just because they, they haven't participated doesn't mean they will start to, does it? No. So when I when I look forward and I, I'm sort of just looking at valuation, right? Valuation means a lot to me at our firm. We're stock pickers. We look at individuals. We look at individual companies. And when you look at the S&P 500 is trading at about a 40 percent premium to its you know 20 year historical P.E. multiple um, range. And if you look at the small caps, it's about a 15 percent discount. So I think, uh, you know, there's there's value. They're cheap. And uh, if you dig through the rubble and, and there is some, you know, money can be spread out and, and, and you start to look at other sectors except for these seven stocks and the, and the S&P 500 that have been controlling all the returns, I think there's going to be a lot of money to be made in 2024. Mm -hmm. All right, let's go, let's go pick through some rubble, shall we, uh, and, and go to some stocks that you do like. One is Atlas Energy, $2.4 market cap, priced at $17.30, an oil field services company. Why do you like it? Yeah, and today's a little bit cheaper with, with energy coming in. So this company just went public uh, beginning of this year. Um, they basically transport and produce frac sand in the Permian, a very good area. Mm. So when, when they do this, it's, it's basically a logistics company um, that has autonomous trucks, and they're going to reduce transportation costs by 90%, emissions by 50%. But, uh, but more importantly, when you drive in these very difficult roads in the Permian, uh, it's going to reduce fatalities. 
So they have a 42-mile conveyor belt system called the Dune Express. Just spoke to the company about a week ago, and uh, CapEx is uh, right on track, so I like that. And this is one that I think is just completely differentiated from the competition and, and one that we would own for the next three to four years. All right, let's go to the last two, and we'll, we'll go for a twofer here. One is Pool Corp, biggest pool supplier of pool-related prog- products in the world, and Palomar Technologies. Uh, tell us about those two. Yeah, I like pool because it's pulled back. They obviously had a great, uh, a, a great tailwind um, in COVID when everybody was spending money on their, on their backyards and their swimming pools. But what people don't realize, it's about two-thirds of their sales are just boring repair and maintenance of your swimming pool. So it's more boring than people think. So I like that one a lot. And then Palomar, just an insurance technology company, um, should do quite well, uh, growing quickly and trades at less than 15 times earnings. So again, a, a fast-growing company that people have just left for dead because it's not a sensational seven stock. At mm-hmm. some point, people are going to find this one, and uh, and it's going to that multiple is going to grow in, in, into its earnings. I love it when more boring than people think is an attribute. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, Sandy exactly. Villery. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tyler. All right, coming up, Centene's Investor Day is underway. The country's largest Medicaid provider raising its earnings guidance for next year. We'll ask the CEO about that and its new four billion dollar buyback with shares hitting their highest level in nearly a year. Plus, the CEO of TriPoint Homes is here with his latest read on the housing market as mortgage rates hold steady above 7%. You'll be surprised at who's buying their inventory and what they're paying. The exchange is back after this. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of the medical provider Centene up over 4% on its annual investor day. The company raised its 2024 adjusted profit forecast and authorized an additional $4 billion to the $1.2 billion remaining in its previous stock buyback program. Still, shares are down about 6% this year, as you can see on that chart. For more here, let's head over to the New York Stock Exchange, where CNBC's Bertha Coombs stands by with Centene CEO, Sarah London. Bertha. Thanks very much, Tyler and Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, one of the big issues that people have been looking at this year, you're the nation's largest Medicaid insurer, has been states dropping people off of the Medicaid rolls now that the uh, pandemic public emergency has ended. What are you seeing and what are you seeing with regard to those people being able to gain coverage on exchanges? Yeah, this has obviously been a huge focus for us for over a year as we prepared for the process that formally kicked off on April 1st. Our our priority has really been working closely with our state 
partners because it is a massive undertaking for them and leaning in uh, to figure out how we can help them ensure coverage continuity. And so we are seeing um, some of those administrative distant roles. We're seeing roughly 25% of members who come back onto the roles um, because of procedural drop-offs. So we've been trying to help actually make that process more efficient. And then we have been able to also help members move over into marketplace products in order to preserve that coverage continuity. And so we're seeing that as an industry, we're seeing that from Centene's perspective, and we think that that ultimately is going to drive better health outcomes because those members have consistent access to care. One of the things you told investors today was that you see yourself as a platform of growth when it comes to government-sponsored health care. You already stand high on the hill when it comes to Medicaid, high on the hill when it comes to the exchanges. You have a million uh, members, and you're really trying to climb that hill when it comes to Medicare. What are you looking at next year, particularly since you had gotten lower scores from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid going into 2024? Yeah, so as we said, we believe that the three pillars of Medicaid, Marketplace, and Medicare are core to our platform. We think they are all three really um, exciting growth opportunities. And our focus in Medicare has actually been uh, pivoting to a, a historic focus on serving that low-income, complex senior population that's consistent with the sociodemographic population we serve in our other two lines of business, which allows us to leverage the local core capabilities that we have there into serving this more fragile, complex, dual-eligible population. I don't notice you, though, advertising like some of your larger competitors as much. Well, so reaching those populations is a little bit different. We're definitely advertising. We're finding the right channels to meet those members. Um, those members also typically purchase through brokers, um, actually through mail order. There are different ways to reach the dual eligible members. So we've been really refining our distribution strategy against that target population. And the big switch you're making next year involves your pharmacy benefit contract. Mm -hmm. You have switched from CVS Caremark to Cigna's Evernorth, formerly Express Scripts. How is that going and what are you going to gain from that switch? Yeah, well, we were really happy to be able to take more than $40 billion of pharmacy spend out into the market um, in a competitive process. Obviously, chose ESI. We've been working on that implementation all year. We've hit all the milestones. We actually had an early go-live of one of our states in October that went really smoothly. So we're excited for that 1-1 kind of big bang that we have coming up. And for us, some of it was a fundamentally different cost structure that we could acquire um, to the benefit of our customers, our state customers and obviously our, our federal partners, but also the level of transparency that we know that our customers demand and seeing through contracts and understanding what the pricing strategies are. That's been an important thing for us because of the role we play in government-sponsored health care. And then innovation. Um, and so those were part of the criteria that we evaluated. And CVS has been a great partner to us during the transition, and we're excited to move forward with ESI. You know, we've got a number of really innovative drugs that are coming on, and just this week we saw the... Uh, approval of a drug to treat sickle cell disease. And more than half of the people who are affected by sickle cell disease in this country are on Medicaid. But with these drugs priced at $2 million, how are you going to try to help provide access to these patients? 
Yeah, so what I would say in general is my hope is that all of the stakeholders across the industry really step up to design ways to make this accessible and affordable because that's what we should do for things that are curative. We know the cost benefit, we know the life benefit for those members. And so we are working really closely with our government partners to figure out what mechanisms there are to, again, make this accessible and affordable. And we have best practices from past examples that I think we can lean on. But can you really afford that all in one swoop? I mean, in 2024, is that priced in? I don't think it all comes in 2024. And if you look at how Medicare actually treats these drugs, there are mechanisms by which we can actually bake those into the rates going forward. But again, finding the right ways to pool the purchasing power and pool the benefit, because we really should be focusing on what's the best thing for those members. Sarah London, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Tyler. Back to you. All right. Thank you uh, both, uh, Sarah and Bertha. Coming up, a decision of epic proportions. The antitrust case against Google in San Francisco could lead to massive changes to its Play Store. We'll discuss what those could be when we return. We'll be right back. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked... That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Time for some show and tell where we show you a chart and then we tell you the story. Shares of Choice Hotels down about 10% since mid-October when the company first revealed its buyout offer for Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. Now, Choice is launching a hostile takeover bid for Wyndham, appealing directly to shareholders there. But would a takeover be approved by federal regulators? Here's what Choice Hotels CEO Pat Patius told Squawk on the street this morning. When you look at the hotel services market, the combined share of the two companies is only going to be 17% of the rooms. And those rooms are owned by small business franchisees who control their own pricing. So the consumer is not going to be impacted here. The franchisees set their pricing and their pricing strategy. This is not uh, the dollar menu or $5 footlongs. Um, our franchisees can set their pricing as they see fit. All right, let's go to Pippa Stevens now for a quick CNBC News update. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Tyler. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu posted a video today rejecting the idea of Palestinian Authority rule in Gaza. The video on his official government account said that he will not allow the Palestinian Authority to take over once the war is over. This is in contrast with the U.S. position. Netanyahu said he appreciates the support from the U.S., but that this is where they disagree. A newly declassified U.S. intelligence report said that the war in Ukraine has had severe costs for the Russian military in both equipment and troops. The report assessed that about 315,000 Russian troops have been killed or wounded. That's nearly 90 percent of the pre-invasion ground force of 360,000. More than 2,200 tanks and one-third of its armored vehicles have also been destroyed. And Delta passengers were stranded overnight on a remote military base in Canada after the plane made an emergency landing. The 270 passengers switched planes in Goose Bay and waited hours to take off again, but a staffing issue extended the stay through the night. Delta told NBC that it apologized to customers for the inconvenience and will compensate the passengers. 
Tyler, back to you. Whenever a pilot says we need to put down and make an emergency, I say you just do what you need <laughs> yeah. to do. I'll wait it out. You, you and me both. <laughs> yeah, Pippa, thanks. All right, coming up, it's been a tough year for housing, but not necessarily for TriPoint Homes. Shares there up 65% so far this year. The CEO will tell us how they're attracting buyers, what he sees ahead for the housing market. And as we uh, head to break, here's a look at markets moving higher. All three major averages hitting new 52-week intraday highs. The exchange is back after that. Green arrows, folks. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The home construction ETF, ticker ITB, climbing more than 50% this year. What a snapback from last year as builders reap the benefits of low existing home sales amid high mortgage rates. Luxury-focused TriPoint Homes, among them, uh, shares there up 65% on the year. And while its homes don't come cheap, averaging a little, about a little more than $700,000 per delivery, TRI Point, TriPoint is uh, seeing increased demand from younger buyers, with two-thirds of its customers being millennials or Gen Z. And incentives like right rate buy-downs could be what's helping to get those cohorts into homes. Joining us now for more is Doug Bauer, CEO of TriPoint. Doug, welcome and congratulations on the good results. What are you seeing specifically with respect to how rising or high interest rates are affecting the price uh, of transactions? Down a little? Stable? Where? Well, thanks, Tyler. Um, you know, the impact of higher rates um, whether rates are going up or down. And right now, uh, the average 30-year fixed mortgage, conventional mortgage rate is about 7%. We have, uh, the new home builders have a distinct advantage uh, really over the, the resale market uh, with uh, plenty of levers to pull. We, we can offer permanent, temporary buy-downs. A majority of our buyers actually uh, do a permanent rate buy-down as a matter of fact, as you, as you look at our fourth quarter deliveries from our mortgage affiliate this year, 86% of our buyers are locked in at 6.6%. We also can use forward commitments, which is really a fancy term of having some mortgage funds available at a, at a nice rate. We, we actually have a forward at 5.99% for 90 days. So these are the tools that the home builders use in, in, in today's environment. I, and frankly, I saw the CPI print. I'm not an economist, but I think rates are going to stay where they are for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing for the, the, the for TriPoint and the, and the new home builders. A forward commitment is not a term I'm familiar with, so I might ask you to linger a little bit and explain what it was. <laughs> it says, is it, it says a, is it a 90-day loan? Is that what it is or, or what? Yeah, it, it's, it's basically securing mortgage funds for homes that would close in the next 90 days. And I can provide you with a, on a conventional loan of, of, of a fixed rate of 5.99%. So mm -hmm. it's, it's another financing tool, Tyler, that we use in the new home building industry to attract and get buyers uh, into our homes. Mm -hmm. You know, by the way, our, our home buyers typically put down 19%. Uh, their annual incomes are about $187,000. So we, we deal with a very uh, strong buyer profile here at TriPoint. I can see uh, certainly why the home builders, such as your company, have an advantage over the previously occupied homes because those folks may have mortgage rates at 3%, 4%. They don't want to sell. They're locked in yeah. like me. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and so and so the new home is 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 really a great option. But I want to come back to my my initial question. 
Are the prices you're able to get today the same as, higher than, a little bit lower than the prices you were commanding for an, a, a, an identical home a year ago? They're generally a little bit higher, mm -hmm. um, anywhere from one to two to three percent on, let's say, maybe around 60 percent of our communities, 70 percent of our communities. So the prices have trended up. And it's because the fact that you're making, I mean, there's this locked in effect at, in the resale market. And as a result, the new home builders are, have typically about a 10 percent market share. Right now, we're enjoying about a 30% market share of all home sales. So that locked-in effect uh, reduces supply. And when you reduce supply and demand is there, pricing will hold steady or gently mm -hmm. go up. Mm -hmm. Interest rates, though, where they are, are going to keep rate, uh, pricing kind of where it is. Uh, we reported incentives of about 3.8% at the end of the third quarter. And, and, and so that's, that's kind of a little bit of a governor as far as uh, pricing into the future, and, and as far as where rates go. So I've always said rates affect payment and pricing. It doesn't affect demand. So, you know, if mortgage rates go up to 8%, then we'll have to make those adjustments. Yeah. I, I think there's been a mythology, perhaps uh, or urban, urban legend, that Gen Z and millennials were going to be slow to come into the market. But you're selling two-thirds of your houses to these demographic cohorts. I assume that they are moving into houses for the same reasons the baby boomers before them, the Gen Xers before them did. It's, you're right on, uh, Tyler. I mean, and as a matter of fact, the Gen Z are actually buying homes at a younger age than the millennials. <clears throat> there was that old wives' tale, and it's probably some truth to it, that the millennials were staying in, in the parents are parent. I have millennials there mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. our basements. They weren't <laughs> in our basements. They're coming, they're coming out, forming households and buying homes. 52% uh, of the millennials own homes. Gen Z, 30% uh, of the 25 year olds owns uh, own homes. So that, that, that demographic is a huge demand component for the future of housing as we look forward mm -hmm. for the next five to 10 years. Those, those of us baby boomers who may be, may be selling houses over the next five years, we're counting on those millennials and Gen Z people, uh, Doug. We are. We, we are, are counting definitely. on them yep. to come in here and help. One other question. Are you, you, you mentioned mortgage rate buy-downs. Uh, do you sometimes get into the business of helping with closing costs? Is that another way that you can tip the uh, transaction from, from almost getting done to getting done? Sure. We'll, we'll, we'll use a, a, a number of levers, as I, I, I alluded to, and, and closing costs, providing some options at, at, at no cost or some incentives mm -hmm. on that are definitely the, the case. The one thing that I would like to make a point with you, Tyler, is, you know, when we talk about rates and there's this whole trade, you mentioned our stock up this year, you know, the home builders have typically uh, traded down when rates go up and, and when rates go down, the stocks go up. The one important thing, and I think Doug Yearly and Stephen Kim mentioned this last week, and I, I think it's an important issue, uh, point for the industry, is that TriPoint and our new home builders have continued to de deliver results despite higher or lower rates, pandemics, because we've structurally changed. Our balance sheets are, are leaner. Our leverage is leaner. As a matter of fact, we're generating positive cash flow and growing the top line and the bottom line and actually get putting, giving back the cash to our 
stockholders in the form of stock repurchases and dividends. At, at TriPoint, our, our book value per share has gone up 15% mm. since 2015 annually. So that's a pretty good trade and pretty good performance. So this rate trade this in how the, the builders are perceived in this rate environment, uh, you know, I think we've put that myth to bed a little bit. All right, Doug, thank you so much for your time today and uh, continued good luck. Doug Bauer, TriPoint. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tyler. You got it. All right, shares uh, coming up. Shares of publicly traded game makers like Roblox and Take-Two are higher today after Epic Games scored a major antitrust victory against Google. The details and what it means for other apps in the Google Play Store next. And as we head to break, here's a look at some of the stocks hitting new all-time highs today. Booking Holdings, Chipotle, Marriott International, and Costco. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back, everybody. Epic Games, the company behind Fortnite, scoring a major legal victory against Google. Uh, Julia Borston joins me now with the details of the decision as well as the broader implications. Hi, Julia. Well, Tyler, though Google and Epic's battle isn't over, Google says it will challenge the jury's ruling in favor of Epic. But this verdict points to big potential changes for app makers. Google could be forced to change its Play Store fees, which can be up to 30 percent of in-app revenues, enabling developers to pay lower fees or even avoid paying them entirely. It also um, could be forced to allow these apps to offer competing app stores, which they would control and profit from entirely. But the judge will decide the remedies to Google's anti-competitive practices in mid-January. Wells Fargo saying it sees, quote, Match and Bumble as the most meaningful potential beneficiaries of App Store fee reductions, which ruling does not necessarily suggest intermediate immediate-term benefit, expect the market to begin underwriting fee relief. Wells saying that this could also be a positive for Meta because it's been looking to have its users download apps and transact through its ecosystem for a while. Now, KeyBank notes that Spotify, Match, and Bumble have agreed to side deals that offer them more favorable terms than the base 30% fee. So not to read too much into implications for those names, but depending on the judge's decision, they could end up paying even less. And the smaller apps that have not been able to negotiate independent side deals those are the ones that could really benefit from not having to pay as much to Google. Tyler? Let me, let me see if I'm understanding this correctly. Fundamentally, the, the two main places that people access apps are on the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store, right? So yes, and Google and Apple act as sort of gatekeepers. And if you um, download an app from them, you then also have to pay a fee, not just, um, or if you're the app creator, you would have to sort of give a percentage of your, of your revenue and effectively pay a fee to that gatekeeper, which is Google or Apple. For providing the platform from which your app has been bought. So what are the barriers to entry for those apps to do exactly what I believe it was you described, and that is set up their own platform or their own distribution vehicle or store to sell their app or others? Well, right now, it's simply against the rules. And that's what this lawsuit has been about between Epic and Google and also Epic and Apple. And that's why um, Epic, maker of the very popular game Fortnite, is at odds with these mm. two major platforms, which it says have a digital duopoly here. So what's interesting is that's sort of what precipitated this whole thing. Now, it doesn't make sense for every app to have its own 
app store with in-app purchases, but right. there are a lot of apps that would really benefit from that. Um, and if you're a game maker and you want to be able to sell add-ons or tools for people who are playing your games, you would like to have your own store within your app and not have to pay any fees to a Google or an Apple. All right, Julia. Thanks very much. Julia Borston reporting for us. Uh, coming up, from AutoZone to Ulta, retailers not so optimistic about 2024 despite record spending over the Thanksgiving shopping weekend. But after Morgan Stanley's retail conference, their analyst says this name should be a standout next year. We will reveal that name when the exchange returns. The last time we saw our next guest, he told us it's Amazon and Walmart's world, and we are just living in it. Well, he's heard from more than a dozen retailers since then and says despite broad inventory normalization and some improvement in margins, retailers of all stripes are still striking a cautious tone heading into next year. Uh, but one stood out among the pack, five below. That was the mystery chart we teased just a moment ago. Joining us with his takeaways from the Morgan Stanley Global Consumer and Retail Conference's analyst, Simeon Gutman. Simeon, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Um, you still like Amazon and Walmart? Do you think they're still just the, the, big, uh, the big gorillas in this marketplace? Yeah, I, the message on that last week was that in an e-commerce world, there's two behemoths taking most of the share, and that leaves crumbs for everybody else. That's the e-commerce side of it. I follow Walmart, and they seem to be the big winner in that regard. If e-commerce continues to take share at the pace of uh, at the expense of uh, brick and mortar, then yeah, that's 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 where the top line seems to be growing. Five below is a little different story. And by the way, thanks for the the dozen companies we had seventeen uh, of our retailers there. Five below is a little different because they seem to be in, in their own lane. They're controlling their own destiny. I know we've heard from toy makers that the toy environment is tough. But Five Below has creative merchandising that drives traffic into their stores, and they should be able to grow closer to their normal algorithmic growth, which is pretty good, mid, mid to high teens EPS growth. Yeah. I want to come back to, uh, I want to get a little more on Five Below in just a moment, but, but I don't want to leave Amazon and Walmart. In that e-commerce space, isn't, Wal isn't Walmart a, a somewhat distant second to Amazon? They are. Mathematically, Amazon probably has 30, 40 percent of e-commerce market share. Walmart's probably six. Mm -hmm. If you look at the total revenue pool, Walmart still has a bigger overall share of U.S. consumer spending. Right. So now Amazon's doing that all online. Walmart is not too shabby. Look, Walmart's many years behind in that regard, and that's what they're catching up on. Uh, at first, they went at it with a first uh, a 1P approach. And that proved to be maybe too narrow of a focus. And now they've expanded to third party. They have forward positioned inventory. They're put a, sell a seller summit in September. So they've put a big emphasis in adding the marketplace. And I'm not sure Amazon feels their footsteps, but I think they can be heard now. It seems that an, that an undercurrent of the, uh, uh, the 17 companies is that the they're expecting consumers to become a little bit more cautious, though five below... Constructive on holiday and momentum, uh, stable positive margin outlook, new format stores, shrink recovery expected to take more than a, more than a year, um, input cost deflation. That's a pretty good sign from five below. So are they the outlier here? Yeah. And I, just to get to your first point on the consumer sounding cautious, I'd say a year ago, the tone was probably more optimistic. And that proved mm -hmm. to be too aggressive, too optimistic. As we look now, the companies and somewhat are capitulating the realities of this tough backdrop, discretionary spend under pressure, durable good units, negative, 
many companies comping negative. So companies were much more sobering about the backdrop. That was the tentativeness. Five Below stands out because they sell value. Uh, they sell uh, discounted product across multiple product categories, right? They're an amalgamation of an off-pricer and of a discount store. Um, and their merchandising is working. Their traffic is growing. Their same-store sales are up. Um, and they are almost uh, insulated from all the noise that's happening outside. And so if you're looking across the space in which demand looks pretty tough and, and what you called out earlier, which was margins look to be one of the only bright spots, this company has the full P&L working for itself uh, in 2024. Quick final thought. I, I think there have been two stocks that I have heard mentioned the most on CNBC this past year. One is NVIDIA. OK, everybody knows about that. The other is Ulta Beauty. Where are you on that one? Uh, we're equal weight. Um, you know, we like the company structurally, tactically, uh, earnings per share look like it's, you know, they're, they're growing, but they're cresting. This is a business that mm. was late to recover, right? Beauty as a category was late to recover coming out of COVID. They've done nicely. Um, valuation is kind of garpy, so it's int intriguing. Uh, we just don't see the rate of change interesting enough into 24 as of now. You created a word there, garpy. I like it. I like it. Well done. Uh, how about a couple of the other big box stores very quickly, uh, like a Lowe's, like a Best Buy, like a Dick's? Um, I'd say patience. I wouldn't. I would say don't force it. Dick's structurally undervalued. We think they keep a lot of the top line and margin that they that they got during the COVID period. They they are proving the market wrong in that regard. They are doing that so far, but still underpriced. Um, Lowe's home improvement, I'd say be patient. The worst mm -hmm. of home improvement comps or sales are probably in the next in the next six months, the fourth quarter and the first quarter. So while the market wants to discount a change of the interest rate cycle, it's probably a little bit too soon. All right, uh, Simeon, thank you so much. We appreciate your time today. Thank you for Thanks that for full rundown of all the stores in retail or a big, big number of them. Appreciate it. OK, folks, uh, that, the hour goes by very fast. That does it for the exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.